As you know, we've been going through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Um, and as we saw a couple of weeks ago um, in chapter 1, Paul's writing to a church that's experiencing suffering. And he puts that suffering into some context. He says that their suffering will count them worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, the suffering is part of what it means to be in the kingdom. But this doesn't suggest God's indifference or impotence in the face of that suffering. In fact, he reassures them that God is just and he will give them relief and he will pay back the trouble for those that are persecuting them, ultimately bringing punishment and everlasting destruction on their persecutors. But when Paul encourages them with this promise, he is, of course, referring to a time in the future. God will, of course, comfort and protect his church, but ultimate judgment and vindication awaits for a future day, a future event when he comes as he says, to be glorified in his holy people. And significantly, Paul says, this includes you. So this day Paul's talking about isn't just something for people in the future, disconnected from the people in Paul's day. Whatever and whenever this day is or will be, it will involve them. And that's an encouraging thought for those that are suffering persecution and injustice, excuse me, and injustice in the present moment. There's a lot at stake for a suffering church in this promise of God's future judgment and vindication. And that's why Paul's keen to give due consideration to this topic. <clears throat> Perhaps we might be inclined to put it off to one side because we ourselves haven't shared the type of persecution and suffering that the Thessalonians had. But I think it's interesting that in these letters, which are some of the earliest canonical writings that we have, um, this topic of Jesus' second coming is frequently addressed. In other words, our knowing about these promises and our understanding of these promises is important. And that brings us to our reading today from chapter 2, where, as we'll see, Paul focuses his attention on this subject of Jesus' second coming. So let's read um, from chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that there may be revealed so that he may be revealed at the proper time for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way and then and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the lord jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming 
The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He'll use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they'll believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So this can be quite a difficult passage for us to interpret and understand. Firstly, because Paul seems to be incredibly vague in his descriptions of these coming people and events. When I read it, I find myself begging Paul to be a bit more specific. Give me a name. Give me a time frame. Give me anything more than just these generic terms of man of lawlessness and reference to powers and times. I want him to be more specific. But also it's challenging because, and possibly related to the first, is that we're likely missing some information that the church in Thessalonica seemed to have. In verse 5, Paul mentions how he had told them about these things while he was with them before he had fled Thessalonica. So this wasn't all new information for them. And it's what Paul writes here seems to supplement whatever Paul had discussed with them before. Which of course is interesting because it further suggests how much this topic had been discussed even in these earliest days of the church. But it does leave us in a challenging position today where if we're not careful... A passage that was intended by Paul to be clarifying and encouraging and uniting uh, for the church ends up becoming something that's just mystifying and divisive uh, for us. But nevertheless, I think when we take a step back, thinking about other references that we do have talking about these things, uh, rather than suggesting for us that the Bible is somehow incomplete for this lack of information, we can actually salvage Paul's core message for both the Thessalonians uh, in the first century and also for us today and therefore find similar encouragement and and good news in that uh, truth. So let's get started by asking ourselves the question, what is Paul talking about and why is he writing this uh, section of the letter? As we've already mentioned, he's talking about the day of the Lord and clearly from verse 2, there's some concern about the Thessalon- amongst the Thessalonians that this day that had been promised to them had already come. Um, we've already noted from chapter 1 how important the promise of this day of Jesus' return is for a persecuted church. What would be a day of justice and vindication and relief for a suffering church. But it was also a significant theme in the first letter to the Thessalonians that we've looked at recently. For example, in chapter 4, there was a concern for brothers and sisters who had died. In other words, had they missed Jesus' return because they had died? Then in chapter 5, there's the question of times and dates Paul talks about, when these things might happen. Again, he's not specific there about times and dates. Um, But as we've noted, these types of questions were very prominent uh, in his correspondence with the Thessalonians and by extension his teaching uh, to the Thessalonians while he was with them. And it's interesting to note how Paul deals with those questions 
which, as I've said, he doesn't really focus on specifics or answer the questions that we today might have precisely. He doesn't say this is going to happen on this day in this year and this is exactly what it's going to look like. He doesn't get bogged down uh, in that sort of detail. But instead, he focuses on how the hope that we have in these promises ought to affect our lives as we expect uh, in hopeful expectation of this coming day, these coming events. Precisely when Jesus will return is less important than the assurance that he will indeed return. And that includes all those who are in Christ, whether they're dead or alive. It doesn't matter that you've died before the promised return. You'll share in it just as much as those who are still living. And even though we suffer, we ought to be encouraged through this suffering. But not just encouraged, all the more determined and disciplined and prepared for that coming. The way we live our lives matters now because of this promise far more important than precise details of when or how. I think Paul acknowledges that we need to be careful when we try and get too far beyond this. When he exhorts them in verse 21 of chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians to test the prophecies, to be discerning about them. In other words, if we read too much into what Paul is writing about here, We risk stirring up divisive controversies that end up doing more harm than good, just as it had done to the Thessalonians. They'd heard rumours and teachings from people purporting to be from Paul that had already come. And by getting led astray by that sort of uh, teaching and speculation, um, they were distressed, which isn't the intent of this type of teaching. So clearly while knowing what has been revealed about Jesus' return and the end times is important and worth talking about and a source of encouragement, we do need to be careful not to ask too much of the text or go beyond what's written, beyond what's necessary for us to know. And I think this is part of Paul's intent um, in his writing. So while the lack of details, as we might see it, might be frustrating to our curious minds, let's not try to wander too far off the path and lose sight of that important point. But to bring us back to our passage this morning, this topic of Jesus' promised return is clearly the important backdrop to Paul's discussion here in chapter 2. And specifically the concern, as I've said, that this day has already come. And we see the damage that that sort of speculation can do uh, to a Christian's faith because we might be concerned about the brother who has died that they might have missed Jesus' return, as Thessalonians were. So if Jesus had already returned, then surely we're in trouble. What hope is there to be looking forward to a promised return that's actually already happened? Doesn't that suggest we've missed the boat? It's central to Paul's uh, response to this concern is his discussion about this man of lawlessness, as he describes him, and this act, the, the activities of this man of lawlessness. And Paul's argument is that because this man of lawlessness had not yet come, Paul too can confidently claim that Jesus has not yet come. 
these coming things that Paul describes in this chapter, whilst concerning in and of themselves, are actually a source of reassurance and hope for us um, because they must happen. These things must happen before the promised return of, the, of Jesus. And that gives us hope. These things must come before and that gives us hope. So let's paint a sketch of this man of lawlessness as Paul describes him. Firstly is his name. The NIV here calls him a man of lawlessness, which is how I'm referring to him. But other translations also refer to him as a man of sin. And he's also a man doomed to destruction, as the NIV puts it, or as others put it, son of destruction or son of perdition, you might have heard uh, from the old King James version. So this would prompt us the question, does this man bring destruction with him when he comes, or does he bring destruction upon himself? Does he bring destruction, or is he doomed to destruction? And we could argue that ultimately this is really the same thing. Clearly this person is is characterised by sin, defined by sin, lawlessness, rebellion, bringing it, causing it, and ultimately suffering it for himself at the hands of God. In fact, it brings to my mind Paul's description of mankind in Romans chapter 1, where he describes them as being filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity, etc., etc., and ultimately there to the coming judgment that awaits such men. It's the same type of person um, being described here, defined by sin and doomed to destruction. And we see this nature of sin manifest in his actions. Firstly, he not only opposes God, but he exalts himself over God. And not just God, Yahweh, the one true God, as we know him. He says everything called God or worshipped as God. In other words, this man is claiming for himself all honour, all worship from everybody in every way, the focus of every religious impulse. And this is epitomised by him establishing himself in God's temple and proclaiming himself to be God, to actually be God. So you get the picture of this almost totalitarian figure placing himself at the top of every social and religious hierarchy to the exclusion of all other all other things. He isn't just opposed to God. He claims to be God and is actually greater than God as we understand him. His coming is also associated with a great rebellion or falling away. The word is literally apostasy. So our minds immediately think of uh, false teachers uh, or false prophets or even the Antichrist. Um, this man is, of, of lawlessness is strongly connected with this, this idea of rebellion or apostasy, whether that's leading the rebellion or emerging from the rebellion or exploiting uh, the rebellion in some way to his own uh, deceitful ends. Some have suggested that this apostasy um, in the Greek uh, or falling away is really a going away, which would make this a reference to the idea of a rapture or departure of God's people 
before a coming tribulation uh, here at the hands of this man of lawlessness. But while this understanding isn't necessarily unsupported in the Greek definitions of the word, uh, you could construe the word that way. It does seem to me to be a somewhat tenuous understanding uh, given Paul's context and, and seems to me to be clearly motivated by uh, certain flavours of premillennialism and whatnot. We don't have the time to go into all that uh, type of stuff today, but I just thought I'd mention it in passing given that uh, it is a surprisingly common understanding uh, within certain, certain circles today, that idea of, of rapture before tribulation. <clears throat> but it, it does seem to me here to be describing an era or a movement of rebellion and departure from God associated with this man of lawlessness, which I suppose is exactly what you would expect to be associated with the man who elevates himself as a God substitute, as we've described him. So finally, Paul describes the means of this apostasy. How does this happen? And the short answer is, in accordance with how Satan works. This is interesting, firstly, because it suggests that this man of lawlessness isn't Satan himself, as we might be tempted to, to assume, but it's effectively his emissary, in a way. He's playing by Satan's playbook. And what's that? Lies and delusions. All these lies are going to be supported by all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders, as Paul puts it. In other words, none of it's true, it's all a lie, but it's going to seem true because it's supported, uh, for want of a better word, by these impressive signs and wonders. And here my mind goes back to the magicians in Pharaoh's court in the book of Exodus who, if you recall that context, were able to imitate Aaron's miracles um, with the turning their staves into snakes, etc. And, but that was all the excuse that Pharaoh needed to harden his heart and continue to believe the lie that God wasn't actually who he said he was and wouldn't do what he said he would do. He continued to believe the lie because um, of, of the wonders performed by his magicians. It just gave him the excuse uh, to persist. And indeed, the same hardening of hearts seems to be involved here. In verses 10 and 11, we see this same complex interplay between the individual will to, to reject the truth on the one hand and God's allowing them, perhaps even encouraging them, to persist in that delusion in anticipation of the promised coming judgment. Suffice to say, this is indeed how Satan, the father of lies, works. He encourages the lie, exploits the lie, but it ultimately uh, leads to destruction, just as it did for Pharaoh. So that's the picture Paul draws of this man of lawlessness, a man of sin, lawlessness, destruction, exalting himself above God, proclaiming to be God, leading or exploiting this widespread falling away or apostasy. It sounds like an imp a powerful, imposing and even dangerous individual. Yet we needn't fear because we can be reassured because, as Paul describes it, the work of this man is tempered somewhat. Firstly, 
He's currently being restrained and held back, awaiting the proper time. Now, while we don't know what time that is, clearly as strong as this man is, his power isn't ultimate. He might claim to be God, but he isn't God. Indeed, his defeat is at God's hand, or more to the point, as Paul puts it, his defeat by the breath of Jesus' mouth and just the splendour of his coming is a foregone conclusion. In fact, even the works of this man accomplishes ultimately by God's forbearance. We've noted how he's restrained until such restraint is removed, as well as how God allows this delusion to persist and fester in the hands of those who reject the truth. So we have this figure who's powerful, dangerous and destructive, yet is, is restrained and is ultimately doomed. And I think this is Paul's main takeaway. Because events that on the surface seem random and chaotic and out of control, lawlessness, destruction, etc., they are in fact ultimately purposefully allowed and controlled by God to some extent. This man's influence will only be let loose as Paul says, at the proper time. This restraining power won't be defeated by him. It's not a man who finally breaks his own chains, but the restraint is actually removed at that appointed time. So all of this starts to sound very deliberate and purposeful and planned on God's part. And I think that's Paul's point. Because all these future events ultimately culminating in Jesus' return are appointed and planned by God. And in that we can find great comfort and encouragement. Yes, there is and will be a great struggle between these opposing powers, but one is and will be victorious over the other, despite what might seem the case around us at the present time. So that brings us to the million dollar question. Who actually is this figure that Paul is referring to? Now, obviously, as we've said already, this is a great source of speculation and controversy. So I don't want to get too bogged in, down in the details, but I will outline some of the main understandings of who Paul might be talking about here. Firstly, there's a strong connection with the king or ruler from the book of Daniel, um, This includes familiar references to things such as the abomination that causes desolation uh, that Daniel talks about. And without going into all the details, this is most likely referring to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans in 70 AD. So if you remember, Paul was writing around 51 or 52 AD, so nearly 20 years before this uh, destruction would happen. So this is still a future event uh, in, in Paul's day. Jesus also refers to this event in Matthew chapter 24. And there where Jesus is talking about it, he clearly expects these events to happen within the lifetime of many in his audience. So this, could, this understanding could place the figure as a single man, maybe Vespasian, who was the Roman emperor at the time, or possibly also his son and future emperor Titus, who was actually the general uh, in the army leading the siege 
and destruction of Jerusalem uh, in AD 70. So there's also a strong connection uh, with the beast of the sea from Revelation chapter 13. This creature is an object of worship and blasphemy, leading nations astray. Um, also in there, the, power, the nature of the beast's power is a power that is granted and contained in a similar way to the way we've talked about with this man of lawlessness. And again, this beast is most likely referring to the whole empire of Rome and parallels the fourth beast described in Daniel chapter 7. So we would be referring not necessarily just to Vespasian or Titus as emperors, but indeed all the emperors of the empire of Rome, who, as I'm sure we're all aware, were were famous for their enforcement of of emperor worship, worshipping the emperor as the one ultimate god, and of course, the Roman Empire was a source of uh, common source of persecution for early Christians, revolving around their refusal to worship uh, the emperor. And also through Rome, connecting in in with the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem. Becoming more speculative yet, um, many people have tried to to identify the Roman popes. Um, as as these, this man of destruction who they see as usurping uh, God's place of authority, uh, you know, basing their position and authority on lies and all of that sort of thing. We could go through a laundry list of names that have been thrown up through history from Napoleon to Hitler to Stalin and Mao, even Donald Trump most recently. All these, all these purported antichrist type figures as we might describe them that are known for things like their suppression and persecution of the church, their totalitarianism elevating themselves um, as, a, as a godlike figure, or even just their rampant abuse of power and deceit. Um, all, all these types of figures that, that people try and, and, and frame as this man of lawlessness that, that in, you know, points to the impending return of, of Jesus. Um, all of, all of these different ideas you'll find out there. So like I said, a lot of possibilities and a lot of speculation. Some of these figures are people from the past. Some of these people are just people predicted in the future. There always seems to be people about trying to connect these types of prophecies with whatever might be happening in the current time. So, so what are we to believe? What, what is true? Well, Firstly, I think we can claim fairly strongly the first two possibilities with a lot of confidence, mainly because of the obvious strong corroboration with other prophecies in Scripture. As Paul says, test the prophets. Um, And it seems to me the, the, the the broader testimony of Scripture seems to point fairly strongly to these um, events, especially centred around the destruction of the temple in, in 70 AD. But of course, if that's true, and the events that Paul was talking about with this man of lawlessness happened in 70 AD, these were of course future events that Paul could point forward to for the Thessalonians, but they're well and truly in the past for us today. 
And so where does that leave us? Remember, Paul's argument here is is that we can have confidence that we haven't missed Jesus' return because these events, the man, the, the man of lawlessness, hasn't come yet. But which is great for the Thessalonians, but of course, technically, according to Paul's argument, Jesus could have come any time since then, and we, in the year 2021, can have no more confidence that Jesus hasn't yet come than the Thessalonians were before Paul had written this letter. So where where does that leave us? If If the man of lawlessness came in 70 AD... Where does that leave us? Well, let me answer those concerns by referring to the other man in Scripture explicitly referred to as a son of destruction. And that is the disciple Judas in John chapter 17, verse 12. And there Jesus prays. While I was with them, referring to the twelve disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son, of the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So there clearly Jesus is referring to Judas, who he refers to as the son of destruction. And it's the same label that Paul puts on uh, this man of lawlessness, who is doomed to destruction, the son of destruction. So by quoting this, I'm not trying to suggest that Judas was the man that Paul is talking about, um, because Judas had obviously been and gone, even in Paul's day, so it wasn't a future uh, event to be hoped for. But I think when we reflect on Judas's role in the events surrounding Jesus' death, I think it encourages us to think a little about prophecy in a, in a richer and deeper way. In fact, I think we can see all of what Paul describes around Jesus' return in 2 Thessalonians encapsulated within the story of Jesus' betrayal at the hands of Judas, his death and resurrection. If you think about it, tribulation, betrayal, Satan being allowed free reign to weave his destruction are falling away, both of the disciples uh, who abandoned Jesus at the cross or Israel as a whole who abandoned the Messiah to crucify him. But ultimately, defeat of Satan, defeat of death, vindication for God and the Christ uh, through his resurrection and ascension. In other words, a story of great evil that was permitted by God to happen, but ultimately led to a defeat through God's hand. And I think we can see most prophecy in this way, drawing a bigger picture of the pattern of God's work in the world through history. This isn't to suggest that prophetic fulfilment isn't literally true in, the, in specifics, like the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but that we can look at fulfilment more broadly as it paints a reality of, of fulfilment that increasingly arrives in progressive stages, reflected in events one after the other, until their ultimate fulfilment in Jesus' future return.
Consider what John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. He says, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So, according to John, there's a sense in which there is one Antichrist yet to come in the future. But also there are many Antichrists that have already come. There's one Antichrist, but there's many Antichrists. It's this sort of this idea of now but not yet. Many instances, many individual instances of a larger pattern of Antichrists. And John reminds us that this is what tells us that we are in this last hour. We are in the last days because of this pattern of Antichrists coming and to come. And I think this too is Paul's point. Because we are in this in-between time, this time of antichrists, this time of lawlessness, this time of wickedness, lies and delusion, a time of challenge and persecution. We see these signs all around us today, just as the Thessalonians did. But just as when we see Judas's betrayal of Jesus leading to his death, we also and then also see Jesus' subsequent resurrection. So too, when we see the man of lawlessness, when we see that type of destruction, when we see that type of desecration of God's temple, when we see Christians fed to the lions, when we see gulags and genocides, when we see the rampant rejection of God, when we see all of these types of lawlessness, sinfulness, destruction, we also see them in the context of a power that is constrained and will one day be defeated by the breath of Jesus' mouth and the splendour of his coming. We see Jesus' story reflected in our own lives, betrayal and suffering followed by vindication and glory. But when we see or experience that suffering, it's a reminder and encouragement to us that the vindication and the glory has not yet come. We know the vindication and the glory has not yet come because we see the suffering. When the Thessalonians saw the destruction of the temple at the hands of the Romans, or when they saw their brothers and sisters martyred at the hands of the Romans, Paul says they can take encouragement because Jesus' ultimate victory is yet to come. These things, these sufferings, these men of lawlessness must come first. We don't have to get caught up in identifying precisely one man only who Paul might have been writing about to conclude that the future, even for the church, will involve great sin will involve apostasy and falling away, will involve suffering and persecution. This is the power that Paul says is already at work, but it is a power that is contained. It's not ultimate, and it will be defeated upon Jesus' return. In other words, things will get worse before they get better, and they will only get permanently better with Jesus' return. These are the times we live in, the times of the man of destruction, 
but we await the future with faith and hope. So come, Lord Jesus.